Open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. We've actually already done chapter 1, but very few remember me doing it. Because we did it back when we were outside almost a year and a half ago. Over a year and a half ago, rather. So what we need to do is we need to get a little refresher of who this is to and what is going on as we work through this book. Uh, It opens up in 1 Peter chapter 1 saying, Peter and Apostle are those who are elect exiles. What he's doing there is he's identifying identifying these, these people that are scattered throughout all of Turkey, modern day Turkey, as the people of God. Elect exiles are words that are only used. Elect of the diasporas, what another translation says. It's words that are only used of Israel. And so what Peter is doing, and if you remember Peter, Peter struggled with it, whether Gentiles could be allowed to be true Israel. Because they, he said in Acts 15 that, he, that they had to keep some of the law. And then Paul came down and says, no, stop it. Right. So now this is later after that. He's writing to this group of churches who are under harsh, harsh persecution. And he's saying, don't worry, you are God's people. You are the elect exiles. He says that they've been born again to a living hope that is abiding in them. And then finally, at the end of that, he calls them to holiness. He calls them to be of one mind. He says in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And that's where, that's the, the context of what we get into here. He's t- talking to these different churches and telling them how they should act in such a way that they can, they can live together in holiness and, and promote the gospel going forward. And then we get to our text this morning. Our text this morning, our title is going to be The Marks of Salvation. We're going to see three things. It's, first, we're going to see that the, one of the marks of salvation is a distaste for depravity. We're going to see that, that we are to put off, put away, to take the clothes off of our old life, of our flesh. Second thing we're going to see is a desire for devo- devotion. It says in verse 2 that those that are saved have a desire to learn more, desire to be under the preaching and the, the reading of God's word. And finally... The third thing we're going to see is that there's a demonstration of deliverance. Basically, that there's, that there's a hope and a desire to grow in the faith. Not just to be there, but to grow in the faith. The main idea is genuine salvation is shown through a desire for the Word of God. A desire for the Word of God. Stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are a good God that comes and dwells with us and that you call us out of this world to live as sojourners in this world, to live as representatives 
of your son. Father, I pray that as as we come to this word, as we seek to understand what it means, that you would open us, open our hearts by the power of your spirit and guide us into new revelation by the power of your word. It's in your precious son's name I pray. Amen. See you. So as I said, that the, the context of this is holiness and that what it means to be born again. He's not talking to these, them as new believers, but he's talking to them as, as what are some things that are going to be common amongst all of these churches. So the first thing we see is that there's a dis- distaste for depravity. Verse 1 says, so put away, literally this is rid yourself, take off the clothes, all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. The first question I have is, why should we rid ourselves of these things? Which seems pretty obvious, but what, what we need to see is that all of these things are, in, are not an exhaustive list of things that we're to rid ourselves of. These are things that, these are examples of the flesh, the fruit of the flesh. If you go over to Ephesians, you have the fruit of the spirit, but you also have the fruit of the flesh. And so you see that these are different, different things that will cause strife within the body of believers. There's something interesting here, though. Malice, is, I, I have a definition here for it. It says malice is a, a purposeful desire in the heart to wound or hurt another person. Now let's take that, take that definition for a moment. A purposeful desire in the heart to wound or hurt another person. I got that from John MacArthur. If that's the, a proper definition, I believe it is, then all of these other things flow from this first. It says, put off malice, which can show up in deceit. How is deceit malice? Well, a purposeful desire in the heart to wound or hurt. When you are lying to someone, when you are being purposefully deceptive, there is a purposeful nature of hurting that person. Hypocrisy. We see Jesus time and time again as we move through the book of Luke. Time and time again say, you whitewashed tombs, you brood of vipers. What were all of those things saying? He was calling them hypocrites. He was saying, you look good on the outside, but on the inside, in the way of the whitewashed tomb, you're dead. You, you brood of vipers, you, you little Satans is what that means. It's a harsh language. So when we act one way here and maybe outside act another way, when we, when we act one way to someone's face and then go around uh, with someone else and act a complete other way, that is a form of malice, envy, desiring something that is not yours, desiring that something that someone else has to be your own. How is that malice? Well, Jesus told us, that, that if we, the, what matters is the heart, not the, the actual acts, right? He said if you, if, you, uh, if you covet something, then you, well, that's a bad example. But if, if, you, if you hate someone in your heart, you've committed murder, right? If you lust, you've committed adultery. In the same way, envy, it, the ultimate end of that is going to be that you, you are wishing that, that you had something that they have. And so what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is that in this envy, we are, we are, dis, we are, how should I put this? We have a distrust in God's provision for us. We have a distrust in God's provision for us. And slander, we, we all know what that is. Slander, we're talking, we just talk bad about someone. All of these are what flows from this idea of malice. 
Now, what I want to say at the very beginning, there's no perfect church. There's no church that is perfect, but there are two types of churches that we can break up according to these. There's a church that is seeking to gratify the spirit, and there's churches that are seeking to gratify the flesh. There are churches that are seeking to, to be hypocritical, to be envious and slanderous, deceitful. And there's churches that are try- seeking to be open and honest and, and show who we are, not in a way that, that it would scare people off, but in a way that's honest. There is no perfect church. The, the, the famous quote goes, if you find a f- perfect church, don't join it because you'll mess it up. Right. If we if we go at it from that mindset, we fail. Romans chapter seven, verse 14 through 18 says this. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but it's sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry out. What is he talking about here? That's a lot of language to say something very simple. It's saying that the flesh and the spirit of God that lives within us are waging war. The flesh wins sometimes. But we, the Spirit of God, the, what matters is that the Spirit of God is fighting it. What did, I, what did I say about this? It's a distaste for depravity, distaste for sin. It doesn't mean we're sinless. It means that we hate the sin that we do. If we can go on sinning and, and not care, that's a problem. But if we sin and we hate the, the fact that we sin, if we, we struggle with that, that's a, actually a mark of your genuine faith. And I want you to see that. Our life with Christ is marked by a distaste for sin. These things, though, though we may still struggle with them, we hate them. He said in, in chapter 1, verse 23, that we are a new creation. You have been born again in this new life that we live. Instead of embracing, embracing and justifying these wicked sins, we remove them from our life. We take them off. We repent and we, we believe. If, if this happens to naturally, Peter would not have to give the advice. Notice that, that he did not say completely remove it, but he said, take it off, take it far from you. I, I want you to see who is, who is he writing to here? He's not writing to people he doesn't believe are Christians, right? He, what, is, what did I tell you at the very beginning? The two elect exiles. He's saying these are, this is the church and the church struggles with these things. So put them far from you. Our new life is not marked by sinlessness, but it is marked by those who want to sin less. It is marked by those who hate sin, the sin we once loved. This is the negative side of the argument. But on the positive side, the second mark of our life in Christ, our second point, is a desire for devotion. Verse 2 starts as like newborn infants. Now, this analogy is used a couple different times in Scripture. It's used sometimes as, as those who are still on the milk, those they should be on the meat. It's immature believers. That's not the way that Peter's using it here. He, the, the, the focus here is not on immaturity, but on desire. It, it, as we, it, it's a, a mark of mature. As, as we mature, we should grow out of infant-like dependence. 
So Jesus said that you should have childlike faith. Faith, but in what? In what ways? How are we to have childlike faith? We're to have childlike trust in who God is. But we're to be mature in our thinking. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul writes this. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. The Peter here has a specific purpose of why he's telling them to be like infants. He goes on and says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, crave this pure spiritual milk. The emphasis here is on purity, not on the milk. When he's talking about uh, a, a matter of maturity, he's, not t- he's talking about the milk as, as, as something nominal, as something base. But here he's talking about the purity of it, the pure milk. It's, he's not saying it's the basics. He's saying that we need his word, that we should be dependent upon God. How I, I thought about telling Chelsea to do this, but I would have been wrong, to wait to feed Alethea until I got to this point in my, ser- my sermon and see how well y'all were able to listen with her screaming at the top of her lungs. Why does she do that? Why do children, why do children cry out for the milk? Because the only way they know to live without it they will die. That is how we are to be as, as Christians, these newborn infants, craving the pure spiritual milk of the word. Now, what is the pure spiritual milk of the word? It's your Bible, first and foremost. Open your Bible, read it. Open your Bible, get on a plan and, and seek this. Second, it's the preaching of the word. What we're doing here right now, the preached word is this pure milk. Now, there, there's, there's spoiled milk and there's pure milk. Do you know anyone that desires spoiled milk? No, absolutely not. That's a simple answer. The spoiled milk is milk that takes this, rips it at kicking and screaming out of context, and says say whatever we want to make it, makes it say whatever we want to make it say. Pure milk is that which is, is you come to it asking God, what does this mean? Not what can I get from this, but what does this mean? Like newborn, newborns, our nourishment must come from the word of God. In fact, one of the clearest marks of salvation is a desire to know him and better. is a desire for him. This is primarily through his word. We, we should be so dependent on his word that without it, we wouldn't survive. We live in such a blessed time when we have such easy access to the word of God. But I fear that our familiarity with with it has diminished our desire for it. Let me say that again. I fear that because we have, I have in my office probably 15 different, different types of Bibles. Our familiarity with it, our ease of access to it. It has destroyed our desire for it. We must renew our desire and our reliance upon his word. The word of God does not work by osmosis. We actually have to pick it up and read it or listen to it. Those are our only options. There's a a common joke you've probably heard before, but a new pastor goes around visiting members in the house. And when he gets to the member's house, he takes a spoon. They put out the, the really nice silverware, the nice plates. And he takes one of the spoons and he hides it in their Bible. Well, he didn't think about it for a while. The, the, the wife figured it out. The husband didn't care, obviously. And the wife figured it out and said, what's going on? What, did the pastor steal a spoon? 
So the months go on. No, you probably just lost it. Well, a year later, the pastor's been there a while now. The honeymoon phase is over. And the, the guy comes and said, Pastor, when you came over, we lost a spoon. Did you accidentally stick in your pocket or something? He said, no, it's been there the whole time. It's been in your Bible. The, my question is, how long would it take you to find that? If, maybe I have done this. Maybe I've been it when I'm at your house. Maybe I've hidden the spoon in your Bible. How long would it take you, would have taken you to find it out? I haven't done it. Just a, that was just a joke. I thought about it, though. <laughs> a lack of desire to be in his word is either evidence of immaturity or apathy. Either way, you must address this issue. Thankfully, it's easy to address. Begin today. I printed out this morning a five-day reading plan in the back. We go through it every year for the last three years. Is everybody our fourth year through it, I believe? Fourth year, third year, one of the two. Going through it, it's five days, five days a week, two to three chapters a day. It's not that hard. And if we do that, if you miss a day, make up on the weekends. It's really easy to do that. We went through about half of the New Testament with our boys this year, uh, just reading before supper. So that's one way. Carve time out. Make time. You're never going to find time. Make time to read the Word of God. Read it as a family. Read it individually. But make time to to grow in this because it's the most important thing we do. So God's people are evident both by what we hate, we hate sin, and what we love, His Word. But the final mark of a believer is that, that we see is in this text is that they are marked by growth. They are marked by growth. You can be a Christian for a long time and never mature. It's just a reality. Or you can be a Christian for a very short time and mature leaps and bounds. So what we're going to see in this last verse and a half is one of the marks is a demonstration of deliverance. Look at the end of verse 2. That by it, by what? The word of God, the pure spiritual milk, right? That by it, you may grow up into your salvation. Now, that poses a question. How do you grow into salvation? Salvation is something that happens one and done. You turn your life to Christ, you bend the knee to Christ, you're his. So how is it that we grow into salvation? That's the Bible's words, not Jensen's words. Well, I think it's talking about two different things. One is justification. Justification. Does anyone remember the pop quiz? Does anyone remember what justification means? Just what? Thank you, Alice. Just as if I've never sinned and just as if I've always obeyed. That's how God looks at you when you turn to Christ. When you turn to Christ, when you submit to him, you're free of sin. Sin has left you. But there's still a second part, sanctification. Sanctification is what happens from the moment you turn to Christ to the moment you meet Jesus face to face. You're growing in your, in your faith. You're growing in your maturity. You're growing in your, your dependence upon him. Sanctification never ends. Even in heaven, many scholars believe that we're going to be growing in sanctification. Even though we're sinless, we're still going to be growing in our knowledge of him. We're going to be growing in our uh, dependence upon it. There's going to be no more sin holding us back, but there's also going to be so much more to learn. It never ends. Justification happened in a moment in time. Just sanctification is maturity. Justification is standing. You're standing before Christ if you are his. is sinless. Guiltless. 
and the, one of my professors said it this way, God could never be more satisfied with you than he is right now. I don't care who I'm talking to. If you're a Christian, God can never be more satisfied. That's an amazing statement. But here we're talking about something different. We're talking about sanctification, how to grow up in your salvation. You see, the desire to grow springs from an experience with the Lord's kindness, an experience with, that leaves believers desiring more, as Tom Schreiner said. That, that when we truly get saved, and as we grow, there's a desire to grow more and more and more. The Christian life should be one of continual growth. But the sad reality is that many of us get stunted in our growth. The zeal of our salvation wears off and our desire to grow and know more about God wears thin. Beloved, may this never be. If this is you, I want to encourage you this morning. Renew your zeal in the Lord. Never grow stale in your walk with the Lord. Or in your desire for the Lord or desire for his word. We must actively seek to grow this coming week, this coming year. There new, this coming week alone, there's numerous opportunities. We're starting something brand new this year. Tuesday, we're going to be meeting for a discipleship group. We're going to be going through Wayne Groove's 20 Things Every Christian Should Know. Everyone is welcome. We've been doing this for about six months. Someone's got that, that growth cannot be forced is dependent on something. Look to our last verse. Verse 3. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the, the evidence. It's not a threat saying you don't really believe. It's just the evidence that you do believe. If indeed you've tasted the Lord is good, what happens? Go back to verse 2. Then you have a desire to grow up in your salvation. If you've tasted that the Lord is good, then there's a, a yearning in your heart to, to get closer to God. Taste the Lord is good. It is impossible to do anything but want to grow. There, my favorite place to go when I go back to Phoenix is Oregano's. I, I, it, there's a taste of that pizza that I've not found anywhere else. I've been to Chicago. I've had their pizza. Nothing like oregano's. Oregano's in, in Phoenix, Arizona is the best place to go and get a thin, thin crust New York style pizza. Never been to New York, so I'm probably wrong about that, but that's okay. All right, for me, that's the best place to go. Every time I go to Arizona, I'm going to oregano's. Why? Because I've tasted that it is so good. I desire it. It's the same thing with Christ. When you've tasted his goodness, when you've tasted the joy and the mercy that he's showered upon us, we desire him. It's impossible to, do, to, to not desire him when you've truly tasted him. The spirit of God changes our taste. It's not a natural thing to desire God. In fact, the Bible says in Romans chapter 3 that by nature we hate God. By nature we want to run from God. By nature, God tastes disgusting, according to the, of this. But in the Spirit of God, when he enters into us, he changes our tastes. He changes our taste buds so that when we see the things of God, we see something so sweet. The Psalm 119 says it's like honey to our lips. The word of God is like honey to our lips. It's our nourishment, it's our satisfaction. When, when Timothy, Paul's, one of Paul's uh, sons in the faith, was writing to, him, to Paul and, and talking about how, how hard it was at this church that he was pastoring in Ephesus, Paul wrote back to him and said, nourish yourself on the word of God. 
Nourish yourself on the word of God. If you're struggling today, if you're struggling with whatever you may be struggling with, nourish yourself on the word of God, knowing that he is good and he will satisfy you. The spirit of God changes our tastes. It's no longer terrible. It's wonderful. I want you to see that when you have truly tasted the goodness of God, a supernatural work of the spirit has happened in you. That he has removed the desire of the flesh, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, and given you a new desire for the things of God, namely his word. Do you see this? Do do, do you thirst for his word? Psalm 42 says this, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. This is the demonstration, a mark of salvation. If you don't have that desire, pray that God would give it to you. It's not something you can work up on your own. It's not something that if you just keep going and keep pushing forward, it will be given to you. It's something the Spirit of God has to change in you. So hit your knees and pray that this would be true. And start reading this word. It is the lifeblood of the Christian faith. So what do we do with this message? Three things I have. First, purposely fight against the flesh. Purposely fight against the flesh. Put up barriers in your life. If you're struggling with a certain sin, put up barriers so that you don't go there. In in AA, they talk about people, places, and things, right? It's good advice. If you are struggling with a certain sin, change the people you're around that makes you struggle with it. Don't go to the same place where you struggle with it and stop doing the, the things, that, that buying the things and going down the right street. If you're struggling with a sin, put up barriers in your life so that you're no longer getting around it. Find an accountability partner. Have someone in your life that you trust, that you know, that you can talk to, and that they can help you work through the, that sin. Rid yourself of the sin that, it doesn't, that, that does not belong in the Christian life. Rid yourself of that sin. Two, cultivate a desire for the things of God. Really basic. Pray. We have to get up in the morning and pray for the desire for his word. We have to get up in the morning and pray that God would change our hearts. That God would allow us to forgive those that have hurt us. That God would allow us to, to, to move forward into a greater relationship with him. Pray to God. Daily, carve out time. Don't you, once again, you can't make time. You can't find time, but you can make time. I said that wrong. You can't find time, but you can make time. Make time specifically. It can be five minutes. But take those five minutes every day and pray to God. And if you can only do five minutes, take five minutes three times a day. I don't care. But take five minutes and pray to God. Third, seek intentionally to grow in your salvation. It doesn't happen naturally. Just being here will get you a little bit matured, right? You're under the preaching of God's word. That's great. But how full do you think you would be if you only ate once a week? How many people would be here next week if this is the only meal you had? You'd be malnourished. You'd, be, you'd, be, you'd die of starvation. We have to seek intentionally to grow in our salvation. Seek intentionally to grow in fellowship with one another. Seek intentionally to grow in the understanding and knowledge of his word. There's all sorts of ways to do that. There's books that have been written for 2,000 years on the subject, y'all. It's, there's all sorts of ways to do it, but we have to be intentional about it. If we're not intentionally seeking to grow, we're, we're staying where we're at. 
I remember back when I was in college, I was walking with one of my mentors, and I was talking to him, him about uh, about problems that I was having. I, I, he had been my basically my accountability partner. I was walking with him and trying to work through issues in the scriptures, work through issues with my friends, with him. And he he asked me one time, he's like, how long have you been a Christian? I said, two years. <laughs> he said, what's going on with, with you then? Because I, most of the people in my class have been Christians for 15 years. And they're stunted in their growth. They don't have a desire for the word. They don't have a desire to understand these things. They just come and go. What's different about you? I don't know. I just love the word. I want to understand it. It's nothing about me. It's about his word. And when God works that in you, you have, can do nothing but. Now, that has not been me all my whole Christian life. Not my whole Christian walk. But there's times when we, can, when we so intently seek God. That he sit, he meets with you and he grows you and you you will when you have tasted that you want it for the rest of your life. If you're here today and you you need to repent of your apathy towards God or, the, or His Word, if you need to repent and, and come to Him for the first time, maybe if you need to, to simply pray that God would create a greater desire for you and for Him in you, the altar is going to be open. I'm not going to be here. I'm going to be here playing because, because I, we, we need another musician. But the altar will be open. Come and kneel at the altar. Pray to God. Kneel where you're at. Pray to God. We're going to be singing just as I am without one plea. But that, my Savior, should die for me. Praise God. The altar will be open. Come and pray to him. I want to close with the same way we opened. Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, you are good and you are worthy to be praised. Father, I pray that as, as we come to you today, as we seek your grace and your mercy, Father, as we, as we seek to know you more, that you would guide us according to your grace that you would show us newfound hopes in you. Father, create in us hearts that desire you. Create in us hearts that long for you. Create in us a heart that it seeks you above anything else. Father, I pray that you would move here this morning. It's in your precious son's name I pray. Amen.